Real quick before we dive into this episode of the podcast, be sure to grab your free PDF copies of my latest books at frugal.show forward slash free. Now on to the show. Do you have a podcast that isn't growing the way you want it to? There may be a simple reason for that, but you aren't sure how to decipher what the problem is. That's where a podcast audit comes in. I am offering a new service where you send me a podcast episode of your choice and I audit the podcast for your cover art, podcast name, intro and outro, episode titles, format, sound quality, production value, episode graphics, length, flow, on-air performance, calls to action, podcast directory discovery, podcast website, show notes, social media presence, and more. I am offering this service for just $97 for a limited time. Get your audit today at podseam.com forward slash podcast audit. That's P-O-D-S-E-A-M dot com forward slash podcast audit. Welcome to the Frugalpreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah St. John, and my guest today is the founder of Leveraged Life Management. Welcome to the show, Sean Adams. Sarah, thanks so much for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about your history and background and, of course, also about Leveraged Life Management and what they do? Absolutely. So I've always say that I've been born an entrepreneur. I've got some screws loose or some things going on up there. I just could never fall into the mold of, of traditional employment or just take a traditional path in, in anything in life. So I started my first business right before high school. I was the hustling kid around the neighborhood pushing the lawnmower. And I caught the entrepreneurial bug. I just loved working with customers and the potential with sales and marketing and building services and hiring employees and the scale that could happen. And I actually spent the next eight years actually turning that little side hustle into a full-fledged service-based contracting business. And we did everything from interior work to exterior and everything in between. I call that my real world MBA because I learned so many lessons during that time, trying to manage people as a young person, finance, which we're going to talk about here. I just, I, I went in with little to no skills professionally and, and really they had to be sharpened and created there. So that's really where I cut my teeth in the entrepreneur side of things. And I actually got to a position where I could sell that company, which was a really interesting journey as well to exit a business that you create. I spent a couple of years doing some consulting work. And as I started to go into some sales work that I did as well in the software space, in these kind of three paths that I was taking in my career moving forward, I kept bumping up against this same ceiling. And that ceiling was, and I'm sure your entrepreneur audience will, will resonate, start making some money. You start kind of figuring out, all right, I'm, I'm starting to make some profits. And all the content out there, all the focus is, is very heavy on how to get me from zero to one. And what I mean about by that is how to get me from unprofitable or no business at all to profitable. And that's a very, very important step. And it takes a whole bunch of time and effort to get there. But there wasn't a whole lot of content around how do I get from the profit that I'm actually making to building wealth? Like, where is this profit going to go? Right. And from a, in a nine to five W2 employee, there's your 401ks, your employer helps you out. There's these plans that are in place and, and kind of put you on a path for entrepreneurs. It's the wild west. And so I kept falling into these traps of figuring out where I was going to put my money, how I was going to help it work for me. And I sat down with financial advisors and I kept getting this cookie cutter approach 
that was designed for the employees. Well, just get an IRA, just get a 401k, so on and so forth. And they just weren't applicable. They were very restrictive and they just didn't fit well. I had no control, right? And they would say, well, you, you'll put this much money in per month. And I'm like, I don't, I'll, I might make 10 grand in one month and 5,000 the next and everything in between being an entrepreneur. So I got on a quest to kind of learn what the wealthy were doing. I kept thinking, well, let me emulate people that I really respond to or that I follow. And I went to the events and I got joined mentor groups and things. And I started understanding that there was this entire world out there, Sarah, that this language that they spoke, that the wealthy spoke about, there were these tactics and strategies and, and accounts. And it wasn't so much about the big piles of money they had, but the structure where the money sat, the types of accounts, the strategy that was really impressive. And I learned that you didn't need a huge budget to do so. And so ultimately, I, I stumbled upon the strategy we'll talk about today with our leveraged wealth accounts, which are kind of a, a specially designed type of life insurance. And I put that in, in place for myself. It was transformational for me financially. And I just caught the bug of wanting to tell more people about it. And that actually rolled into me saying, I really want to help entrepreneurs. I want to help high paid professionals and everybody in between to start to learn these secrets. I don't want them to be kept for the 0.1 percenters. I, I want to share this message with the world. So Leverage Life Management came from a place of me being my first customer, learning these topics and, and wanting to share them with others. Awesome. Yeah, I'm curious to hear more about this as well. I know one thing you talk about are the five wealth levers, and I'm curious if you could explain what those are. Yeah. So when I started to look at the options out there for where you could stick our money, I got the, the two kind of pronged approach. It was, okay, I can stick my money in a bank account, right? Banks are safe. They're liquid but they give you no growth. There's no upside potential. You're getting like 0.1% in a checking account or a savings account. So the other option was an investment account, an IRA, a SEP program, a 401k. These had lots of upside potential, but they were very risky because the money was put directly in the market. And you were basically trying to play and beat Mr. Market. And we all know how that works, right? You are riding that roller coaster up and down and up and down. And so when I looked at those two options, I thought, I'm looking for a middle ground. I want to cherry pick the good from each. And turns out the wealthy, that's what they look for. And so the five levers of wealth are really the realization of the characteristics that the ultra wealthy and big banks and corporations look for in a savings vehicle and where they position their cash. So those five wealth levers are guaranteed growth, right? So they're looking for something guaranteed. A bank technically guarantees you an interest rate. It's just so, so small that you don't even notice it. But they wanted to see if they could get that at a more reasonable level and get a guarantee regardless of what was happening in the market, which is the lever number two, we call no market correlation, meaning that they didn't want to ride that roller coaster. It's okay to have some money in the stock market, but they didn't want to be overexposed if there was a downturn. If something happened, their net worth went down with that market, which is very much out of their control. So they wanted something non-correlated to the stock market. So they had some risk mitigation there. And the other side was the tax advantages. That's lever number three. When we look at like a, an IRA or a 401k, those are what are called qualified retirement accounts, which means the government incentivizes consumers to put their money in these accounts and they provide on the surface what are tax advantages to do so. So the wealthy go, okay, well, I want some tax advantages. I don't want to pay a ton in tax. So I'm also looking for that as a lever. Number four then is the, the liquidity side, right? If I put my money in a 401k, an IRA, it's inherently illiquid. They restrict you from accessing your own cash. 
And the wealthy don't want that. They want full control. They want to be able to use this cash on their terms to invest in what they want. They want to be able to pull it out whenever they want and without any kind of fees. And the last lever is what we call the protection side. So in most accounts, bank accounts included, most people don't realize how over leveraged they are from a liability standpoint. So if you go through litigation, divorce, bankruptcy, or some other kind of litigation, your money, your assets are actually liable in a lot of cases to being seized if something were to happen. And so they wanted some privacy, some protection, right? If, even if you have a few thousand dollars, it's worthwhile to understand how you can protect that money. And most of those accounts did not have that. So pulling all this together, those five levers are really what we look through, the lens that we look at when we're trying to value what type of account to stick money in. And with our leveraged wealth accounts, they do the closest job possible to sort of capturing those five growth levers or wealth levers. And, and that's what these, essentially, it's, it's a cash value type of life insurance. It's just structured in a very specific way that can be used like a flexible savings account. And it taps into all five of those levers and gives us a tremendous warehouse to put our cash to then do what we want with. And this is exactly the strategy that people from way back in the 1880s, back to like the Rockefeller days, they've been using this strategy. And, and that's where all the, the, the concept really comes from. Oh, wow. So can you explain more about how that works with the life insurance? So is it a particular type of life insurance? And then does that money grow interest and can you pull it out? And how does it differ maybe from other life insurance or even in comparison to a 401k, for example? Yeah. So let's start with kind of what life insurance looks like from, from a high level. So all it is, is just like any other insurance, it's a hedge against risk. In this case, it's a hedge against the risk of you passing away. So the insurance company basically steps in and they put out insurance on your life. So when you die, if we're talking about permanent life insurance, it's in place for the entirety of your life, which is whole life, universal life, variable life. There's different types. But essentially, that means when you sign up with a policy, just like you insure your car, you insure your life, you're going to pay a premium every single month to keep it enforced. And all that means is when you die, that could be next week, it could be 60 years from now your family is going to get a one-time what's called a death benefit. And it's simply a tax-free lump sum payout that goes to your beneficiaries. And it's just the people that you choose. Could be a spouse, a business partner, a child, anybody that you deem to receive that death benefit. So that's at its core what life insurance is. It's just a hedge against that. So if you are a working professional and you contribute to your family, you want to insure your value to your family and to the economy so you can get insurance in case something happens to you and you can't contribute, this death benefit will step in and cover you and your family. So that's the core of it. What's unique about the type of insurance that, that we use is it's what's called high cash value whole life insurance. So it's in place for the entirety of your life. But it has this unique benefit where when you pay money in, car insurance is the example I use. So you pay $100 a month for your car insurance, right? All that gives you in return is protection in case something happens, right? But if you don't file a claim, if you don't get in an accident, it's not like that money accumulates, right? The insurance company doesn't hold it for you and just let it grow. But that's actually exactly what happens with a properly structured cash value life insurance policy. Let's say that you put in $500 a month into a policy, a small portion of it goes to cover the, the expense of the insurance, and you can actually uh, additional money into the cash value, the accumulation side. 
So in other words, if you don't die, the cash value stays intact and it's accumulation of the payments that you make. So think of it like rollover, right? You make your payments every month. We all need to have life insurance anyway. Why not optimize this account? And what the wealthy recognized is that cash value, that accumulation has superpowers. That's where all the power is because when they're structured properly, they're used with what's called a mutual insurance company. And so essentially that is a company that's off the stock market. They are not listed. They're a private company and therefore they're not impacted by the rise and fall of the stock market. So that's the non-correlation lever. And they are able to return a guaranteed interest and dividend rate to their policyholders. Now, the companies we work with, the minimum floor is 4%, right? So any money in that cash value, they guarantee you an interest rate of 4%. And it's backed up. And we have historical data back to the 1880s, the companies that we work with that have provided this interest rate each and every year for their customers. So it functions kind of like a credit union when you have your money in here. So you get that overwhelming protection, right? In case something happens to you, you get that non-correlation because it's not linked to the stock market. You get that guaranteed growth, right? 4% is great. It's not a home run, but we're not looking for this to be the end investment. You have to think of it about where your cash sits, right? If the alternative is for this to sit in a bank account, well, what are you getting with a bank account? You're overexposed. You can't pick where it gets to go. And it just sits there and doesn't really grow, right? So this is the better, call it wrapper or box that your cash sits in because you get a lot of these other levers that kick in. So uh, I just want to stop there. All that makes sense so far? Yeah, it does. And then just to tie in those other levers, the, the liquidity is often one of the biggest pieces that people like to focus on, especially entrepreneurs, because what it does is it puts you in full control. So this cash value that you have growing, it's getting compounding rate of return of 4% each year. You have protection. No one can come after you. It's a private uh, agreement between you and the insurance company. If you wanted to access that cash, you can use what's called a policy loan. This is going to tie into another feature that we call a kind of double dipping or using your money in more than one place at, at once. Think of it like the equity in your home, right? You know, if you have $50,000 in equity in your house, you can go to the bank and you can take a loan against that value, right? You're not physically removing the cash from the walls. The, the bank just recognizes that that equity is an asset. The same thing happens in these cash value policies. The insurance carrier says, listen, you've got 50 grand in your policy. We'll give you a loan for any amount up to a certain amount, usually about 95% of that 50,000. So if you wanted to go invest in your business, you want to put a down payment on a piece of property, you want to go take a vacation, there's no restriction to how and when you use this money because technically it's yours. So they hold it basically as collateral almost. They allow you to take a loan out against it for any amount up to what you have in there to use however you want. And the entire lump sum of cash value, that 50,000, continues to get the 4% growth as if you never took that loan out against it because you never really withdrew it. You just used that as collateral, right? It's like you go to the pawn shop and you give someone something and they give you the cash, right? As long as you give it back, you still maintain that item. It's the same idea. And so this gets really powerful because there's a, an interest rate that the insurance company does charge you the cost for borrowing this cash from them, but you get to use that cash however you want. So what a lot of people will do is they'll invest in their business. They'll invest in real estate. They'll invest in a vehicle or something. And that might get them a better rate of return. And then they can choose how and when they want to pay that money back. 
because the insurance company recognizes that they have to pay you that death benefit at some point, right? So let's say you have that 50,000 in the policy and let's say the death benefit is $500,000. They know that you could die tomorrow, you could die 60 years from now. They have to pay that out. It's guaranteed, required. So what they say is take the loan out whenever you want for whatever amount you want up to your value and you can pay it back if you want or you don't have to pay it back because we'll just take it off what we owe you when you die, right? So let's say you took that money out and it grew to the, the interest grew to $75,000 and you pass away and you never paid a cent back, the company would just take the 500,000 that they owe you, they would withdraw the 75,000 that you took out in loans and they would pay you the difference. So it's a great way to be able to access your cash without impacting the long-term compounding growth on your money. So I know it's a little bit of a foreign concept. There's very, very few vehicles that operate that way. So I'm happy to answer any questions on, on that piece. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. So you do get charged interest on the amount that you withdraw? Yeah. So it's not a true withdrawal. You can withdraw it, but you're, you're going to be impacting that compounding growth. And so we always suggest using the policy loan. And the reason for that is if I have 50,000 in there and I take a loan for 25,000 out, the 50,000 keeps getting 4% growth every single year, including the 25,000 I loaned out against. Now the insurance company that the cost is a simple daily accrued interest rate. And what that means is it's much, much different than compounding interest that a credit card or amortized interest that a mortgage or like a car loan charges you. What that means is if you were to make a payment back, so let's say you paid $200 a month back, the payment that you make goes to the principal first with simple interest, which means you're paying every payment you make pays down that balance. So it's much, much more favorable for you, the borrower. So that's why a lot of people like to use it because they're getting paid 4% compounding interest, which we know what that looks like when we look out over 20, 30 years, but we're borrowing simple interest where it's very advantageous for us. And every time we make a payment back, it drastically lowers our, our overall bill. Okay. So what percentage typically would the interest rate be? Like probably no more than 3% then, I guess, because then you're, well, I guess the 4% is compounding. And so maybe even if it was over four, it would still be well, I guess what is the average interest rate? Yeah, so it does vary between carriers. Uh, on average, it's like anywhere from four to six percent. So a lot of our carriers will be around five percent or so. But again, that simple interest over a long period of time compared to compounding mm -hmm. interest is vastly different. For example, we just teed up a couple of examples where someone took $20,000 out, made payments back for 20 years at a compounding rate, and we did the same thing at Simple. They paid almost double the amount of interest over the same period of time by taking out a loan from like a credit card or a amortized loan versus Simple interest. So it, it's much more advantageous. It's still a cost. But it would be the same cost you'd be paying if you took like a home equity line of credit or anything like that. And over the long term, if you look at the growth that your account is getting, it always far exceeds that if you do it correctly. Is there a place online that has maybe an image or even a video showing you comparing and contrasting like what you're talking about, the simple interest versus the compound interest and how even if you're paying, you know, the 6% simple interest or whatever, that you would still be making money off the 4% compound. It would be good, I guess, to have some kind of visual of that. For sure. Yeah. I have a great resource on my website. If you go to leveraged-life.com, there's a learn more or it's a, it's, it's, I think it says how it works. 
I have a, we call it a video crash course. Essentially it's about 20 videos on all different ranging topics, common questions that I get asked on our discovery calls with clients. And one of them is breaking down simple versus compound interest. And we show you at scale what that looks like over time with some visuals on a video. We also show how the loans get structured and, and some of the other things to keep in mind. So that's a great place to look. It's a complex topic. There, there's a lot that goes into it. Our goal here is just kind of illuminate this as an option to take a look at. It's not the best fit for everyone. You also don't have to take a loan. It's not like you know, a lot of people just use this as a long-term savings account and they might want to use it to supplement retirement or not. They just use the cash and let it grow and, and do its thing. The loan is just one piece for entrepreneurs who really want to be... So the, the difference is the opportunity cost, right? So if an entrepreneur has money in a bank account, if you had 50 grand in a, in a policy versus 50 grand in a bank account and a $25,000 expense comes up, you take 25,000 out of your bank account, you got 25 grand left in the bank, right? That's it. You use the cash. The idea is this concept of time value of money. So when we have 25,000 today in 2021, what is that $25,000 worth in 2061, right? Because of compounding interest, if it's in the right vehicle, that thing is worth two, three, four times the value it is now if it's in a compounding interest account. So it's not just about, am I saving here or spending there? Mm -hmm. It's more about the opportunity cost. What am I giving up by spending cash now versus the growth potential that that cash could have over the long term? Yeah, that makes sense. And as far as in the example of having 50000 in there, is that 50000 that you've put in or, well, when you were talking about like $500 a month, do you mean like the policy itself costs 500 and, well, maybe a portion of it is the actual policy and then the rest is the savings? Do you decide for yourself how much? I mean, obviously the, the cost of the account in and of itself is going to be probably some kind of fixed cost. But then as far as the extra that you're putting in, do you determine that? Yeah, it's a great question, Sarah. So with life insurance, one of the other huge advantages is the ability to set how and how much the account is, the, the restrictions that you want to put in place. So when you talk about like a 401k and IRA, right, $6,000 a year, $19,000 a year, right, you're, you're boxed in. The government tells you exactly how much you can put in the max amount of fund. With a life insurance policy, technically speaking, there is no ceiling to the amount of money you can put in, but there are rules and regulations we have to stay within. So the question to ask yourself is, what would be the maximum that I would like the ability to fund in in any given year? If I had a really good year in sales, what would be the max I would look at? For some people, that might be $5,000. Some people, it might be a half a million dollars, depending on the size of the company, what they do, all those sort of things. Now, that ceiling is something that we're striving for, but we don't want to bill for that, right? I don't want to say, okay, I'd love in a perfect year to put $50,000 away, but I don't want to get a bill and be required to do that every single year. So when we set up a policy, the determination we have to make is what is that ceiling? And once we set that ceiling, all the costs come off of that. So for example, if I wanted to be able to put up to $50,000 a year, we have what's called a 1090 split. And that is 10% kind of goes to the cost of the insurance, 90% going to the cash value component. So at the 50,000 mark, the only commitment that I would be making would be $5,000 a year. That would be the minimum that I would have to make every year to have the ability to put in 50,000. Now, if that number was 10,000, your minimum would be 1,000, right? So it's just a ratio there for the most part, for most scenarios. 
we have to establish that upfront, what that ceiling is, and we build all your costs off of that. And so when you fund money in, let's say we take the $10,000 example, and you get an extra $1,000 that you want to put in, as long as you pay that initial thousand for the year, you can actually overfund up to the $10,000 amount. It's going right into the cash value. So when we say you're taking a loan out against your policy, that is money that you've actually contributed. It's like a savings account, money you've put in there. So then like if you wanted to get a policy that was worth 500000 so like when you die, then your family gets a $500,000 check or however that works. So if you're taking out a loan, you can only take out what you've already put in. You can't take against that 500,000. Like if you've put in 50,000 of your own, you couldn't take out 100,000 and then get a $400,000 check when you die. Correct. Yeah, you tap into the cash value or the the what you've contributed plus the growth that it's gotten, right? So if I'm paying in for 10 years, the 50,000 has now become 75,000. The 75,000 I have available for me to loan out against, the death benefit there is a ratio of the amount of money we put in. So that death benefit is always going to be much more than the cash value. And that is a fixed number that we're not matching it. It's basically the insurance company going, "Okay, they do calculations to figure out when you likely will die. If you're this old with this health rating, we think you'll live to 75 or 95 years old. And they just do back of the napkin math to kind of figure all that stuff out. And it's all you know fact checked there. But the death benefit is not something that you would be tackling while you're living. That's something that would be handled when you die. Your loved ones will be able to tap in. They'll be paid that out. With that said, though, one thing I want to clarify there's also some riders that can be put in place. I just had a conversation earlier today about an elderly person. There's something called accelerated death benefit. And what this means is if you get to an age where you need permanent care, a terminal illness, you need to be put in a nursing home or something, there's actually ways that you can actually take the death benefit that would usually go to beneficiaries after you die, and you can actually access it while you're living, assuming you meet certain qualifications like a, a chronic illness or something like that. So you can actually use it like a lifeline when you need it most at the end of your life, when you need it for medical expenses. So there's a whole bunch of ways to get really creative with it. That's why ultra wealthy people, big banks and corporations love it because there's so much control and flexibility that you just don't get with a traditional bank account. Say you have the plan for 500000 and say you put in, over the course of your life, let's say you put in 100000 and you never took anything out. And then, of course, at 4% compound interest, now it's, but let's just go with 100000 So now then when you pass away, your family would get 600000 I guess, in that case? No, technically, they will just get the death benefit, although the death benefit is always a ratio of the cash value and the premium. So it will actually swell. The death benefit will increase over time as you keep making payments in and raise the value because there's always going to be a delta between what the cash value and premium is and what the death benefit is. So technically speaking, it all washes out in the end. You don't technically get the cash value on top of the death benefit, but that death benefit would have swelled with the growth of the account and what you've paid in. So you really do get it back. When you do the math over the long term, you end up getting it. Mm -hmm. um, it's just, it doesn't show that way. It's not like you're getting the cash value you have separate from the death benefit. It's all just the death benefit, which is a, is a product of that ratio that's made up there. So in the long run, that death benefit is always far exceeds our cash value. And we have clients that have millions of dollars in death benefit 
and they paid in, you know, several hundred thousand dollars in there. And so at the end of the time, it, it all washes out. Okay. So then does the 500,000, does that also get compound interest or you just mean the 100,000, let's say that you put in over the course of your life? That's the part that gets the interest and therefore makes the 500,000 bigger. Correct. Yes. The cash value gets the compounding interest. The death benefit is just the ratio it stays within. And and it's there's a lot of calculations to go into it. But just for argument's purposes, let's say it's uh, 100,000 and 500,000. If it went to 110,000, it would it would go up in ratio to like 135 or 535 or something like that to stay within that ratio. The death benefit doesn't get the the compounding interest. It just is a ratio of that cash value and the original premium that was set up. Okay, well, that makes more sense. I I was kind of confused. Okay, so I'm curious the difference between this type of life insurance versus term life specifically. So term life is what's called temporary insurance or for a term. And all that is, is simply the hedge against death. And that is the end of the road. There's no cash value. So it's the difference between like renting and owning, right? So if you were a working adult and you're 40 years old, you can take out a term policy for pennies. I mean, literally maybe 20 to $75 a month. And all it's going to give you is death benefit coverage, right? So you're going to pay in, let's say $75 a month, and you can make that for a 5, 10, 20 or 30 year term. That's the set period of time. And it's like renting. You're just going to keep paying that lease. You don't gain any equity. There's no use of it if you don't die. And it simply just will will be in there like car insurance is. It's, you're not going to have any kind of rollover or anything like that. So it's if you have nothing, term is a good idea to at least have a baseline. So if anything were to happen, that's okay. But over the long term, we always suggest strategy like the whole life side where you can actually have a plan in place where your dollars, you need life insurance anyway. Why not optimize it and have a program where your cash is going to be working for you because odds are you will not die prematurely. I know that sounds strange to say, but there's such a small percentage of people that die before natural causes that it makes sense for you to actually use your dollars to, to be growing and working for you. Less than 1% of term life insurance ever pays out. Right. So think about the billions and billions of dollars that people have in term life insurance, and it's just free money for them. They never have to pay a a claim from the carrier perspective because most people do not die prematurely. So the teeny tiny amount of people that get in an accident or some sort of horrible scenario happens are such a small number compared to those who just live to a healthy life. And so that's why we always suggest at least reviewing uh, a whole life policy as an option if structured properly, because it's just going to be so much better. Just like if you were to buy a home and you bought it at the right price, you're going to be paying and building equity if you do it correctly versus renting for the rest of your life. That's not always the best strategy in every market and for every individual, but this is a true asset and your cash will be working for you all while providing you that protection. Okay. And then the difference between this plan that you're referring to and a regular whole life, what is the difference there? Yeah. So your audience may be hearing whole life and they they hear Dave Ramsey and Susie Orman in the back of their head going, don't yeah. do it. Don't do it. Well, that's and, what I mean. Yeah. I'm familiar with that. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So I'll, I'll address that because it comes up all the time. So traditionally speaking, whole life insurance regular plane as it's been marketed forever, it's typically a pretty terrible investment. And the reason for that is because it's structured improperly, right? And it's all focused on the death benefit. So most agents, most organizations 
do not realize what's possible with the policy, right? It's like when you go and you you go to an accountant that just does year-end taxes, and then you go to like an accountant that is wealthy and that does like, you know, real estate investors. It's like a different language. It's like they're looking at a different tax code, right? They know all these loopholes and special accounts, and they know how to put things over here and get really creative and have this beautiful plan that could save you tens of thousands of dollars if set up properly, because they know the rules of the game. Where the vast majority of life insurance agents, real estate agents for that matter as well, do not know what's possible when it comes to these policies. And so what Dave Ramsey and Susie Orman are referring to is the vast majority of agents who set up and sell general policies that take forever to break even, that really don't build much cash value, and are just extremely expensive death benefit expenses for people, where what we structure is a minimization of expense and a maximization of cash value. So we talked about that 1090 split, right? 10% going to expense, 90% going to cash value. Traditional whole life is usually a 100% to expense. That's normally how it's sold. Meaning if you put $10,000 in a policy, you would see zero show up in cash value, right? All of that going to the death benefit. It's a terrible investment because you don't get to see a dollar of that while you're living. So that's what they're referring to when they say don't do whole life. But like anything else, if it's done properly, there's a strategy that works extremely well. And this is what the people that we emulate that are ultra wealthy, not that you need to have the money for that but do like they do, right? If I want to get in really good shape, I don't go to my neighbor who's like slightly better in shape than me. I go to the personal trainer who's absolutely ripped. Not that I want to be in competitions, but I want to understand what they do, right? And that helps me level up my game. It's the same idea. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So you were talking earlier about how, you know, term life might be 20 to 75 bucks a month. What is the, and I know it depends on age and all that, those types of factors, but what is the average cost per month for this type of uh, plan? It's, it's a matter of choosing what that ceiling looks like, right? So we have people that come in and say, my ceiling's $10,000. The minimum commitment's going to be something like $1,000. And then you'll have the ability to add in up to $9,000 more in any given year if you want to. So if you want to look at expense side in those first couple of years, it's about $1,000 a year if you wanted up to $10,000. If you had much less than that, you're going to be looking at about a 1090 split ratio. So what I normally say for people that are just starting a new business and they're looking for some cash flow and trying to figure that side out, a couple of hundred dollars a month, if you are trying to use this for the long term, not even just savings you put away and never touch, but something you can access, use to grow your business, leverage and get growth on. You know, We have people that start with $100 a month. That's all they can afford. I and mean, there's a plan out there for most scenarios. That's what's so nice about it because I have to sit down and understand your health, your age. Do you have children? Are you married? And how are you trying to use this? Do you just care about the death benefit? Do you need the cash now? So Budgets can be anywhere from, like I said, you know, $100, maybe a little bit less up to, depending on age, up to there's no real ceiling. We have ultra wealthy people that put hundreds of thousands of dollars a month into these programs. So there is no real restriction. It's more of a question of how are you looking to use it and what your budget looks like. So if I want to put in $20,000 a year as a perfect year, I don't want to bill for that. I'm going to be looking at about a minimum commitment of $2,000 a year, about $160 a month, right? So just thinking about that in terms of how we're looking to use it and what our ceiling would be. 
Oh, okay. So it's your monthly payment, I guess, is based more on the amount that you're wanting to put in per year versus because like with term life, it's just like for a $500,000 term life of like 70 bucks, like you said. But I guess this is based on, I'm still kind of <laughs> having trouble understanding the ceiling and the, if you want to put in 10,000, then it's 1,000, I guess, because that's the 90-10. If you want your death benefit, to be 500,000, then I guess that determines how much you have to put in each year and therefore what you're divide by 12 then. Yeah, that's one way to look at it. What we find the most people that come to us are looking at this strategy from the financial perspective first. So rarely does someone come to me and they go, I need this much death benefit coverage because most people don't really care about that. Like they understand that they need it. They need a couple hundred thousand dollars to be taken care of. But again, very, very small percentage chance that you're going to pass away prematurely. So the idea is, well, I want to maximize this cash. I love the idea that my family's protected. That's awesome. But I also want to make sure that I'm not paying through the nose to get that coverage that I'm not going to be able to enjoy myself while I'm living. So most people start with this as a savings tool that has a nice insurance wrapper around it. And they go, okay, I want to put money away for the long term. I have $250 a month that I can put in. I probably might be able to squeeze out to like almost $1,000 a month if I have a really good month. Okay, well, we'll set the plan at like 8,000 or 9,000 a year. And I'm only going to be on the hook for something like that $100 a month or 150, whatever it is. And that might get me a $250,000, $300,000 death benefit, right? So we normally start on the other side where we figure out the financial contribution, and then that determines the death benefit. But you can go the other way. If for whatever reason, you need $1 million in death benefit coverage, we can reverse engineer that to what that would look like and how that would be. Although it's very rare that ends up being the case because most people start this when they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s, right? Rarely does someone come in. If they're in their 70s or 80s, they're normally looking for the death benefit side. It's technically more expensive that way. And it's just a different structure and design of how the policy works, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, that does make more sense. So viewing it as more of a saving. So if you were like, I want to do $100 a month, so that would be what, 1200 a year. So with a 90-10 split, well, let's just say 1000 to round it, then that would be 10000 Well, you'd be putting in 1000 So where does the 90-10 the split come in again? Yeah, it, it often it's easier to start with how much that ceiling would be, what the max oh, okay, you might yeah, want to be max. able to fund is. So for example, if the max that in a really good year, you think you could put 10 grand away, right? Which is $833 a month, but it doesn't have to be like that, right? You're not going to get a bill for that, but you're going to have this ceiling to be able to put up to 10,000. Okay. All you're going to get a bill for every month is the 1,000, the 10%. Mm -hmm. You'll have the flexibility to pay up to 10,000. Same numbers work if you're, if you're doing it at 7,000 or 5,000. So okay. it's more about recognizing what your real budget is. And, and for entrepreneurs, it's most of them go, I'm doing okay right now, but I'm, I should be making a lot more money in the future. So we sort of pad in for expectations. I definitely can't do 10,000 a year right now, but in two years, when my online business kicks in, I should be able to do that easily. Well, we're going to function in for you to just have to pay $1,000 a year now, and you'll have the ability to pay up to 10 anytime you want or not, but you'll, it'll be structured in a way to give you that level of flexibility. Okay, now I get it. Okay. And then if you wanted to increase that ceiling, could you do that anytime, whenever you wanted? And are there fees associated with that changing that? That is one of the caveats. You actually can't change that ceiling. So that's one of okay. the, the downsides here. 
Once we set that up, because what happens is we're taking a policy out on your life. And when we do that, we're setting that death benefit. We're setting the coverage rate, the premium. It's all kind of like set in stone. You can always lessen it, believe it or not, but you can't increase it. So what often happens is we'll start an entrepreneur on a $5,000, $10,000 plan for the year, like a ceiling for them to grow into. Then they do really well in year two, three, four, and they go, Sean, I want to put in 30,000. We had to start a new policy, right? And that's what we do. And then we give them a 30,000 and a new policy. So the downside of that is the first couple of years, you, you eat the initial cost for the thing to grow. But over the long term, you can always expand into other policies. We have people that take them out on every child that's born, their spouse, their business partners. There's ways you can take them out on employees as well to use this for your business. So lots of different use cases there. This has been a lot of good, useful information. I didn't know about any of this and something I'll have to think about now. And well, I appreciate your time today. And I know people want to learn more and watch those videos that you referred to, which I'm going to do now, is leveraged life.com. And then I'll also have show notes with links to everything at thesarahstjohn.com forward slash Sean Adams. That's S-E-A-N. Was there anything else that you wanted to touch on before we ended? I would just say for, for those listening, this can sound really overwhelming, especially if this is the first time you're hearing it. It's a lot of terms and ratios and numbers and life. It, it's a lot to try to take in. So one of the things I, I like to start with people on is think about where your cash is now, right? Is it in the most optimal place it could be? How are you using your cash? And not that this is the only vehicle that exists, but you want to be cognizant of what things are eroding your wealth, like taxes, like inflation, those sort of things. And if the bank account is something that you have your nest egg sitting in, is it working on your behalf in the long term? Is it really working for you? And it doesn't have to be that this is the account you put all of your money in, but if you have to get life coverage, life protection in some manner anyway, think about how you could sort of combine the two. And the beauty of this is you want to just work with an agent that knows how to communicate the variety of options that we have here. And there are other people that do this, but it's not one of those things you're going to go to your local guy down the street and he's going to know. If you say 1090 split to an average agent, he's going to laugh you out of the building. Uh, so it's a very specific type of design that we put together. So I just encourage people, check out the website. I never like to push anybody into anything. That's why we focus on education and really content first, that leverage-life.com. We have those videos on there that really go into depth on your own terms. They show you how people use this for real estate, for investing in their business. We talk about how the growth happens and what these accounts look like, the carriers, all that sort of stuff. And they're in small segments. It's all free. You don't even need an email address to check it out. So always recommend people check out that first. And if you have remote interest, if you're like, I've got a unique scenario, I'm trying to figure out what's going on, and you want to see this as an option compared to other things you've looked at, or just how it fits into an overall plan, that's when it makes sense for us to have a call. I can offer your audience what we call a free wealth audit. Anybody listening to this, I'll get on a 60-minute call with you and actually break down your scenario. And I, what we do is we call three illustrations. They're essentially just proposals that broadcast what the amount of money you're looking to put in will look like at different stages of your life, how you can use it, and we'll give you it with different carriers too. So you get like a holistic view of not only how the strategy works, but how specifically it would look for your age, 
your health rating, and the amount of money you have. So if you go to that website as well, and in the show notes, you can book that call. So you don't just get cookie cutter information. It's going to be specific for you as well. Awesome. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, I'll get that information from you after this and be sure to put it in my show notes. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Awesome. Sarah, thank you. It was my honor. Thank you. Have you considered starting a podcast for your business? Or maybe you already have one, but are afraid of pod fading because you just didn't realize how much time post-production would take. I can help. My company, podseam.com, makes podcasting as seamless as possible. We help you launch, manage, market, and monetize your podcast seamlessly. We do more than just podcast editing and production. We help you leverage the power of podcasting to get new leads and grow your business. Learn more at podseam.com. That's P-O-D-S-E-A-M dot com. Are you a frugalpreneur looking to connect with like-minded individuals? Join our community on Slack, connect with fellow listeners, share your thoughts on episodes, engage in meaningful discussions, including money-saving tips and entrepreneurial insights, and help shape the future of the Frugalpreneur podcast. Plus, you can submit your questions in written or audio form to be featured on the show. Let's build a supportive space together. Join us now at frugal.show forward slash slack. See you on the inside.